Wolfgang Palaver was born in Austria and studied Catholic theology, German studies, and political science at the University of Innsbruck. In 1991-92, he was a research fellow at the Center for International Security and Arms Control at Stanford University. And he's currently a professor of Catholic social thought at the Faculty of Catholic Theology of the University of Innsbruck, where he was also the dean from 2013 to 2017. His publications deal mainly with violence and religion, Thomas Hobbes, Carl Schmitt, René Girard, and Simone Weil. His most recent book is René Girard's Mimetic Theory. He's the co-editor of the European Wars of Religion and of the Palgrave Handbook of Mimetic Theory and Religion, among other books. He was a member in our workshop in the fall of 2018 in Religion and Violence. And what follows is an interview I did with him near the end of that workshop. So I thought I'd start us off. I'd just be interested in, um, actually, I'll start us off by reading a quote, your first sentence of, uh, of a chapter you wrote in um, the Oxford Handbook of Religion and Violence. And I know you prefer to call it violence and religion. Yeah. Although I changed because uh, in the beginning, uh, 20 years ago or so, I didn't care about that. But the more I work, the more I insist. So you can find even articles uh, by me and contributions by me where I do not care. But about the last five, seven, eight years, probably, uh, I, I got stubborn on <laughs> so say so basically what we're talking about is most people when they talk about this field they call it religion and violence as the oxford handbook is called and of course our our program at cti is also called religion and yeah. Violence. 90 percent actually uh, talk about religion and violence yeah yeah and uh you choose you want to talk about violence and religion and put the violence first actually why don't you go ahead and just talk about that why do you want to put why do you want to say it that way first of all the term uh, violence is easier to define than religion because if you look at religion or at definitions of religions you really uh, uh, come upon big problems so I found a very interesting quote by the late sociologist Sigmund Baumann who said religion is something all the people think to understand until they try to define it. Yeah. And as soon as they look for a definition, an acceptable definition, a definition that can be shared, they are lost because it's so difficult. Secondly, religion is a modern concept. So the way we use today religion, uh, detach it from culture, detach it from politics, think it's a completely private thing, uh, is a invention of the 17th 18th century so uh, if you look at the uh, uh, at human history at large uh, <laughs> it's strange and this uh, very narrow uh, and reduced concept of religion is easily turned into a little weapon to scapegoat religions religious people say those are the people or those are the ideologies that are responsible for violence and this is a cheap game because it excludes a lot of other causes that contribute to violence so therefore let's turn it around not to whitewash religion so i also insist i don't want to give uh, religions a free, uh, free pass yeah <laughs> and uh, so that religion don't have to reflect and uh, reflect on their own history and on their own acting but just put uh, 
anthropology first. I think it's also very important uh, for theology to start with a robust anthropology and then look at uh, theological insights because we theologians, and I'm myself one, are easily uh, in danger to give answers to questions that nobody has asked. But if we <laughs> start with anthropology and really look at the issues, uh, then we can look what, what are the theological concerns we have to contribute. So do you think that the quest for a definition of religion is, is just uh, fruitless? Or do you even try to provide one in the end? No, no, it's not fruitless. We <laughs> cannot avoid it. We have to struggle for it. But uh, we uh, quickly realize, and I just did discovered here uh, working at CTI, a book by Benjamin Schevel, who summarizes current theories of religion in, into seven, bundles it into seven uh, main narratives. Uh, in all the narratives, he has three examples of the leading thinkers. So you, c you can see the different uh, theories of religion have different perspectives, different concerns, different questions. Most of them are in some way relevant. And then you, I mean, the, the most important thing, the two things I got out from this book and is very important for my own work, is first of all, we need a substantial normative theory of religion. Uh, it sounds strange uh, because maybe 100 or 50 years ago, many scholars did that. But it was a cheap narrative, a developmental narrative, always ending up with the superiority of Christianity. Many scholars today understand that cannot be done any longer in that way. So they turn away from normative concepts and just describe. But if you have concepts of religion, theories of religion that just describe, you can no longer distinguish between the religion of Mother Teresa and Osama bin Laden. And we are a little bit in that situation. So I think we have to uh, come again up with a normative theory of religion without falling into the trap of our predecessors always claiming high ground and superiority of Christianity. So we need a normative concept theory of religion but also one that uh, is open for the plurality of world religions. So that's the second thing I took out of this book of Schevel, uh, that uh, he strongly aligns with John Hick and says, you can discover in all the important world religions of today a turn from a transformation from self-centeredness to other-centeredness. That's, that's a element that is really universally shared. So that could be one of the things we can look at if we look at religion. So we need a, uh, we need a theory of religion. We have to struggle with that, uh, but we have to try to do it in a normative way and we have, to, we have tried to do it in a way that we are also open for the plurality of religions in our world of today. That's a very interesting suggestion because as you look at this, the landscape of, of the study of religion in its various forms, what you're talking about in terms of a normative theory of religion, I, I would say is kind of falls between the cracks of the various camps. So if you, if you say there's you know, certain groups of people who identify as theologians 
who, um, not that all theologians do this, but certain theologians who primarily, you know, work from within their own tradition, primarily speaking for others who are already committed to that tradition on the one hand, and then, as you say, theorists of religion who refuse any normativity and only want to be descriptive. What you're calling for is something else than, than either of those. That's very interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, I do it, of course, uh, with the help of the anthropologically based theory of René Girard, And the main focus of my work here at uh, CTI is to understand deeper and better Girard's uh, late distinction between the sacred and the holy. And of course, if you focus strongly on that distinction, then you are already at the center of a normative theory of religion. So I think Girard can help us a lot in that direction. He's less helpful, and that I learned over here, in regard to the plurality of religion. So in that case, I think scholars like myself and hopefully generations after myself have to work much more in this direction. So if the anthropological insights of Girard are really important and 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 sound, one has to show how that uh, goes together with Eastern religions like Buddhism, uh, developments in India, Islam, Christianity, Judaism. So could you say a bit more? What how do you take um, Girard's point about the difference between the sacred and the holy? The sacred is, according to Girard, the religion that is so-called man-made, and in that case even man-made is a proper term. It's the, the outcome, the consequence of an unconscious collective mechanism, the so-called scapegoat mechanism, that early tribal groups who had internal struggles suddenly kill or expel one of its members, not knowing really what they're doing, thinking this guy is the key troublemaker, why everything is wrong in the tribe. But as soon, that's very important, as this scapegoat, this victim is expelled or killed, the tribe also thinks this guy has provided now the peace that suddenly broke out between us. So they deify immediately the victim, so this expelled victim becomes the god of the tribe. So this is the sacred, and if you look a little bit into what are the main features of this understanding of uh, the sacred, it's a collective religion, it's not individual, it's, it's parallel to the spirit, so to say, of the tribal group. It's very much connected with the social power of the of the group. So it's very close to what Emil Durkheim observed when he was focusing on the sacred. And if you now uh, go to an understanding of holy, then you see the holy is much more individual. The holy and I also draw in this regard on an important similar distinction by the French philosopher Henri Bergson, who made this distinction between static religion and dynamic religion. So Girard's uh, distinction between the sacred and the holy is very parallel to the distinction 
between static and dynamic religion. Static religion, the collective spirit of the group, whereas the dynamic dynamic religion, or in Shiraz's term, the holy, is strongly connected to, to the individual, is strongly connected to the uh, responsibility of the individual, is not part of the group power, is maybe even seen from a human perspective, a renunciation of typical patterns of human power is closer to a term like grace. It's closer like uh, a gift, if we speak theologically, given by God and not grasped by human beings. So in this regard, I, I think is the, lies the importance of Shiraz's distinction between the sacred and the holy. Coming back to just this more basic question about, um, you know, let's call it the question: Does violence, does religion cause violence? Uh, when you're when you encounter the kind of very flat-footed version of that statement, you know, you mentioned Richard Dawkins, for example, in the first uh, in the beginning of your chapter in the Oxford Handbook on Religion and Violence. You know, Dawkins's claim that you know it would be nice if there was no religion because then we wouldn't have all these terrible these terrible things in the world of forms of violence. I mean, what uh, was most striking for me when I started to read Dawkins, he's referring to this famous unofficial hymn of John Lennon, the song Imagine, I think it came out in 1971. And this song has nice lines, so I use it very often in my classes. I play the song, I show them the text, the students, and then I say, uh, tell me all what you think is right about this song. And there is a, there is a lot of it right in it. I mean, we are uh, currently really challenged by a rise of nationalism, in often in a bad way, all over the world. So John Lennon is rightly and justly criticizing nationalism. He is also criticizing religions who uh, quickly legitimated and justified sacrifices for the country, for God, for whatever. So all this criticism has to be taken seriously. And I give my students often half an hour or so time really to bring up everything that they, that they uh, like in this song. And then after all have really a feeling this is an important song. This is a song that really addresses uh, important questions in regard to violence. Then I ask them, now turn around, are there things, if you, if you read it carefully, that disturb you, that you might put into question? Well, John Lennon addresses also, uh, there is no heaven, just sky above, and there is no hell below. So most of the young students and most theologians would also agree, there is no hell. Uh, I mean, seldom, sometimes there is a student and says, well, uh, is it so easy that we can push hell aside? Well, that's a complicated question. I do not want to go into that. But then there is a line that always was most interesting for me. Nothing to kill or die for. Nothing to kill or die for. And in some way you could say this line is also in, 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 in a broad sense very true. But then uh, if the students do not discover it, I ask them, Think about cases where uh, you found in the history 
persons, admirable persons, very important persons, role models for us, who had to choose between those two things, who were willing to risk their life in order not to kill. So the line, nothing to kill or die for, would only be true in a world where there is no conflict, no violence, no escalation of violence. In a world where those things happen, sometimes people are forced to decide, uh, uh, do I kill or do I risk my own life in order not to kill? Mm. And there are many examples. Think about conscientious objectors, like the famous Austrian farmer Franz Jägerstetter, who was a very, a very, uh, not very well educated, a simple farmer, really a simple farmer, but a pious person, a person who really struggled with the religious teachings. He read the catechism, he was uh, an usher in his parish, and the more he thought about those things, the more he said, I cannot fight on the side of Hitler's army in Russia or wherever. This is not a, a war of defense and so on. And he was the father of three daughters and was married. And uh, the daughters were at that time quite young. And he resisted when he was uh, uh, asked and called to join uh, Hitler's army. He resisted to do that and was killed. And they tried to convince him, and even the, the bishop and the priest said, well, it's not up to you to make such decisions. I think such persons after the Second World War became very important persons. He was recently beatified in the Catholic Church after 30 years or so. So this is a person uh, where you see the line, nothing to kill and die for does not work. And so this is one of the yeah. things we have to understand that uh, sometimes we just go too quickly and too easily over the real problems uh, that we have to face as human beings who are involved in conflicts, often also in wars and so on. And yet at the same time, as you say in this chapter that I referenced in the Oxford Handbook, you're, uh, you're also not wanting to kind of get religion off the hook and say, you know, religion is always good. It's never uh, implicated in violence. So no, that's also very important. And we just can focus on the history of the Catholic Church, of Christianity. I mean, uh, the most dangerous development happened probably in the 10th uh, century when there was for the first time a theology of violence developed where theologians for often political and social reasons suddenly thought it's okay to use violence to force people uh, to believe in certain concepts or to kill people who didn't follow uh, certain understandings of Christianity. So this development and recently German historian developed it uh, very well. This was the precondition or this, these steps that were taken in, in this uh, theology of violence that were the precursor of, of the Crusades, the precursor of very harsh uh, persecution of heretics and people who did not follow this line. So we have to uh, study those things much more carefully. And for instance, when this uh, uh, terrorist acts in Norway happened with Anders Breivik, uh, who claimed himself he, he is in the 
in the following of Christian crusaders fighting against Islam, just this uh, German historian rightly said, well, we have never done really properly this critical investigation of our history. So I think uh, churches, religious people, theologians have to work much more uh, in in the direction of a critical uh, revisiting, re-examination of our own history, of our own legacy. And then we will see that this temptation to find uh, easy justification in Holy Scriptures uh, to make it more easily easy for us to use violence in certain uh, circumstances is a very dangerous thing. So I, I think the, the main temptation is always when we mix religious theological insights with questions of power. So we also know, of course, today, that's also often forgotten, uh, if you look at the history of Christianity, the history of the Catholic Church, my own church, the most violent periods were always when there was a strong connection between state and church. And most of the time it was not the church that used the violent means, it's, it was the state. But the church justified the state. There was a strong collaboration and uh, an, a, new, a new perspective in the Catholic Church really could only emerge after the Second Vatican Council. So with the separation of church, church and state power, church and force of, st uh, of state, church and the forceful means of state that happened in the Second Vatican Council. As soon as this breakthrough happened, then suddenly we could look at our own history more critically, we could uh, develop different concepts in regard to war and peace. I just uh, was reminded uh, these days when uh, George Bush, the uh, 40, uh, 40 41st. 40, 41st. George H.W. Bush, yeah. George H.W. Bush yeah. died, and, and we had some memories and mm -hmm. remindings of him. When he went to war against Saddam Hussein, and compared to the war that happened uh, 12 years later with his son, this was quite a modest and careful war because he didn't go to Baghdad, he didn't destroy the whole of Iraq. So uh, this President Bush really did it in a modest way. Nevertheless, astonishingly, John Paul II, who was at that time Pope of the Catholic Church, was against this war. So if you look at the church history, this is for the first time that a pope in a war one could, one could consider as uh, justified did not give the justification and that's result of a much uh, more uh, relaxed and detached relationship between state power and the church. I mean, John Paul II was not a pacifist in a simple way. He just said, did we really already use all the means or uh, are there still means available before we have to go to the last resort? Right. right. Part of the just war criteria, the last yeah. resort. Yeah. One of the other things people will often point to in terms of this question of religion and violence, in addition to the, the various examples you gave, the Crusades and so on, is just the early modern period where you had these so-called religious wars between, say, Protestants and Catholics. Uh, and the, the whole desire in the modern period to come up with a political system 
that did not have religion as a major force uh, in order to stop that kind of violence. And what, what's your view on that? I mean, I actually for many years was very interested in this discussion and the whole question was triggered by uh, an essay that uh, the now very well known and also important uh, theologian, Catholic theologian in the United States, William Kavanaugh, developed actually in an in a article that he wrote as a graduate student and later he developed it into his book, The Myth of Religious Violence, showing us also with support of many uh, important scholars in the field of religious studies that the term of religion just was or emerged and was invented in our today's understanding at the time when also the nation state was uh, emerging. So the violence we see and that we easily attribute to just to religion are also it was also a result of the so-called birth banks of the emerging nation, nation state. So to 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 really have a clear view on those things, I think the uh, historical work in a, in a good systematic manner has just begun. Began, and in 2012 uh, we had a a very interesting symposium with Kavanaugh, with Jose Casanova, with Charles Taylor, but also with uh, some significant historians on this period, and later published a book uh, about this uh, whole debate. So. I, I wrote the conclusion of the book, which has to do something with my project over here, because in the conclusion of that book I say we need an interdisciplinary collaboration in order to found, find out what we have to understand about the, those so-called uh, European wars of religion, because as today many historians who are really uh, very uh, close to the data and to the facts. They also say as there were economic reasons, there were political reasons, there were many things going together. So to disentangle this this whole uh, uh, play of different dimensions and things has to be done. And I, I thought at that time uh, it would be important and interesting to use Shiraz's distinction between the sacred and the, and the holy and to look from this perspective at the data and the material we have about those so-called European wars of religion. And then you also see wherever religion was closely connected to the grasping of political power, the grasping of economic power, uh, violence and religion were collaborating in a very bad way. But this does not mean that people who had a very different understanding of religion, more mystical understanding, more uh, detached understanding, more understanding that uh, a, a true religious person cannot grasp power and economic power just for the sake of those uh, goals. So yeah. I think this is a work that has to be done and hopefully after I uh, finish my work at CTI, I will also have uh, made some steps further to a better understanding of these uh, very difficult questions. One more question. In terms of the theological task, w is, it o is it too simplistic to say the task in Girardian terms is to move 
religion from the sacred to the holy to emphasize the holy over against the sacred or do you always have both in some kind of mixture in any religion i know in in bella's book his his kind of watchword is the thomas mann quote nothing is ever lost so in his view all religions sort of maintain something of the archaic as as he calls it there is one danger if we understand the distinction between the sacred and the holy as a clear-cut separation we may lead into a very bad kind of thinking that may even contribute again to violence charles taylor who took up uh, some of the key insights of Shirah, writes in his book, A Secular Age, that as soon as the modern people thought they have nothing to do with uh, tribal religions, archaic religions in former times, most of the time, quite soon, excesses of religion happened, massacres. The key example that I like to refer to always in this regard is when the European uh, conquistadores came to Latin America and came across uh, religions who had performed human sacrifices. They immediately thought they are now justified really to extinguish and, and, and kill those tribes and people in an extraordinary way. So the violence they had in their uh, rights of human sacrifice and so on are not Uh, cannot be compared with the massacres that happened justified by Christian uh, conquistadores who thought because they don't perform human sacrifices they can now extinguish these people. That would be just one example that happened. So Shirar very strongly emphasizes uh, the sacred has to be transformed into holy and transformed means means not to separate but to try to integrate in that sense the the sacred in the in the longing for the holy and uh, it's very interesting in Shiraz's last book uh, he underlined that with an important uh, German uh, poet with uh, Friedrich Hölderlin mm. and Hölderlin understood very well in his uh, Christ hymns that he says in one of those Christ hymns, Jesus is the brother of Hercules and the brother of Dionysus. So he sees the connection, but then he says he goes a step further. He he complements these earlier uh, human undertakings to achieve peace among human beings. And in this regard, uh, Shirah follows Hölderlin, and I think we are also... um, Uh, This is also for us a good model not to think that we are morally or or whatever uh, superior to those early uh, developments uh, of human beings. And it was at that time uh, the the trial to achieve peace with however problematic means. And we have our own struggles. And if you compare the figures, sometimes uh, the former times do not look as bad as as we think superficially in the beginning. Well, Wolfgang Palaver, thanks a lot for being on this podcast. Thank you, Josh. To learn more about CTI, visit our website at ctinquiry.org and follow our pages on Facebook and Twitter. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and leave us a review.